Welcome to Wisdom Trek with Gramps. I am Guthrie Chamberlain, and we are on day 2176 of our trek. The purpose of Wisdom Trek is to create a legacy of wisdom, to seek out discernment and insights, and to boldly grow where few have chosen to grow before. Today we continue our extended series of messages that I delivered at Putnam Congregational Church over the past couple of years. This message is week 36 of a 43-week series about the good news according to John the Apostle. John has a unique style and narrative as we walk with him through the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. I pray that it will be a conduit of learning and encouragement for you. Thank you so much. And today we continue our series on the good news according to John the Apostle. Now last week, Jesus prayed that his final act as the Word made human would bring glory to God as he completed his mission. Then he prayed for his disciples that they would be set apart or sanctified as they continued the mission that he began, which was to build God's kingdom until he returns a second time to restore global Eden. In John chapter 17, verses 17 through 19, Jesus said, Sanctify them by truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified or set apart. And you remember last week where I said, to make something holy or precious in the Old Testament was something that was set apart specifically for God's use. And that's what he's done for, with us. He has set us apart, made us holy for his use. And that use is to build his kingdom on earth until he returns. And our scripture today is John chapter 17, verses 20 through 26, starting on page 1680 of the Pew Bible. And today I continue with what I consider the actual Lord's Prayer, as Jesus prays for all believers in a message titled, Jesus Prayed for You. So follow along as I read, starting in verse 20, Jesus prays for all believers. My prayer is not for them alone, but I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you and me are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world might believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought into complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want you, those that you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me, because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them, and I myself may be in them. I want to start out today with a story. This was a story attributed to Josephus, who was the first or second century Jewish historian. Now, we're not 100% certain that this story was true, but it is attributed to him. It was a great campaign for world domination in 330 BC, as before Christ was, came to earth. And this was during that 400 silent years between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. Alexander the Great moved from Hellespont to Egypt, laying siege to walled cities and conquering all the land in between. 
His path to Egypt took him down that narrow land bridge between the Mediterranean Sea and the Arabian Desert, a land ruled by Jerusalem. Israel was a choice piece of land for anyone wanting to control trade with Egypt. No one knew better than the citizens of Jerusalem who trembled, behind, but trembled at the sound of the hoofbeats and the chariots racing south to plunder their beloved Zion. The people of Jerusalem rallied around the high priest Jadua, who fell on his knees before God for an answer. How could he defend the defenseless people of Israel? The walls of the city were crumbling due to age and misuse. And no one dared stand against that seasoned warrior of Greece. But the Lord led Jadua to decorate the cities and to open the gates wide. He was to have person, each person that was go out to meet Alexander's army dressed in white, while the priests wore their vestments of their order. As Alexander's army moved closer to Jerusalem, Jadua led the procession of priests and greeters to the north to meet him. The high priest wore his purple and scarlet garments and the decorative headpiece, which bore the golden plate engraved with the name of God. He stood his ground as the dust from the hooves and the chariots billowed up and darkened the sky. When the Greeks came within sight of the Jewish procession, procession, Alexander stopped his march. He dismounted and stood before the high priest, and there he worshipped the name of the holy God, something he had never done before. According to Josephus, the conqueror had previously seen a vision of white-clad people and the priest with the name of God engraved on gold coming out to meet him. And Josephus continues, Upon his arrival to Jerusalem, Alexander offered a sacrifice to God per Jadua's per, per instructions, and he treated the Jews with great kindness. Then Jadua opened an ancient scroll of the book of Pro prophecy of Daniel, probably to chapter 7 and 8, and he showed Alexander a 200-year-old prophecy predicting Greek domination over the Western world. In Daniel chapter 8, verse 21 says, The shaggy male goat represents the king of Greece, and the large horn between his eyes represents the first king of the Greek empire. Suddenly, Alexander was overjoyed. He was a man who was known for his dark moods, but then he suddenly rejoiced, promising to put a perimeter of protection around Zion. And he allowed the Jews to remain and retain their own law. And this tradition continued after the Greeks were overtaken by Romans. And you remember during Christ's days, they were free to worship in the temple. And this started with Alexander the Great, the first king of the Greece. Alexander himself saw himself in Scripture. And he was deeply affected by that experience. And we have that same opportunity today. John faithfully recorded the Lord's Prayer on the eve of his arrest, in which he interceded for you and for me. He went, on to his fa to, he went to his Father on our behalf, knowing our needs ahead of time, and asking for God to fill those needs in abundance. Think of it. That night, that fateful night when he was facing crucifixion and a trial before that, that he prayed for us. He prayed specifically for three of our crucial needs. 
our spiritual unity in verses 21 through 23, our eternal destiny in verse 24, and our mutual love in verses 25 and 26. So let's start back with verse 20. If you look at those words in that verse, it says, also for these, and that's where your name belongs, that's where my name belongs. He was praying for each of us. If you believed in Jesus Christ, and he prayed for you. Having prayed for himself and the success of his mission, the Lord then petitioned the Father for the disciples and the protection and success of their ministry. And then the Lord petitioned his Father for the generations of believers that would come either directly or indirectly influenced by the disciples' ministry. And this included the believing Jews in Jerusalem as well as the believing Gentiles, which includes us. In John chapter 10, verse 16, was the inclusion of the Gentiles into his ministry. To be sure, this is an act of divine intercession, including every believer who has ever lived or will ever live before old creation is superseded by this new global Eden when Christ returns a second time, as described in Revelation chapter 21. Note also the expression in verse 20, through their message, it's no longer the word of God or even my word. The disciples now possess the truth themselves and could rightfully claim it as their own. By identification with Christ, believers are one with him and therefore we are light bearers. Shining the light like a city on a hilltop which cannot be hidden. This truth is ours in that he has filled us with the divine presence of the Holy Spirit in our persons to show forth the light of Christ. As we move on to verses 21 and 23 through 23, the Lord first asked for unity among the body of believers. He repeated the term three times in these three verses, expressing his desire for unity in faith in verses 20 and 21, unity in glory in verse 22, and unity in obedience, verse 23. We cannot ignore the Lord's significance in the thinking here of all the needs of all believers throughout all of time, and then asking for unity among all of us. There will be all manner of circumstances and all sorts of isms that crop up in our world as they have over the last 2,000 years, but there can only be one body of Christ bound together by one faith. When all have been identified in Christ, we all share the same spiritual DNA. Furthermore, believers will share the glory of the Father that he gave to his Son. The destiny of all believers who follow Jesus Christ into eternity, just as Jesus was vindicated upon his resurrection and he was given that resurrected body, that immoral body that would last through all eternity, so it is with us. In the last day when we're raised to life on Christ's second coming, each of us will be given a glorious resurrected body that will never perish or fade away as our bodies do today. If you'll look at your bulletin insert on the side, it says unity and faith, glory and obedience. A big graphic it says that they may be one. To be in complete unity means that we're made mature or perfected. He desired all the Christians to completely be unified in obedience so that the truth of Christ would be impossible for the world to ignore 
as they see our light and our lives shining on that hilltop, they know that we have Christ within us. However, the unity of faith, glory, and obedience needs a little bit of clarification in case we misunderstand what Christ was meaning here. First of all, unity is not uniformity. Now, if you're training for the military, they strip each recruit of their own individuality in order that they can have uniform kind of unity. All new recruits are given the same haircuts, required to wear the same uniforms. At graduation from boot camp, all emerge looking the same, sounding the same, behaving the same, and prepared for the same kind of duty, which is to protect the country which they're enlisted in. But the body of Christ is different. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, 12, verses 4 through 6 tells us, there are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them, and in everyone, it's the same work of God. Just like our ministry here, Putnam, or anywhere else throughout the world, we have different positions, different types of ministry, but we're all working for the same Lord. And here's just a brief sampling of over the years of the different ministries that have spanned over 2,000 years. Think of Saul of Tarsus, who was a persecutor of the Christians, was renamed Paul, and became a Jew who became the apostle of Christ to the Gentiles, those that were despised by the Jews. Think about Luke, the author of the good news of Luke, According to Luke and the book of Acts, he was a physician. He was also a Gentile believer. He wasn't even part of the Jewish community. But he was a careful historian, and he collected the facts together to put the narrative of Luke together. How about Tertullian, the church father, who was passionate, fiery, zealous, yet logical? Bernard of Clarevox, the French monk who wrote fine hymns from within his cloister. John Wycliffe, the morning star of the Reformation, who devoted his life to the translation of the text from Latin into English so it could be understood by the common people. William Tyndall also defied the laws translating scriptures into English, and he paid for it the ultimate price with his death because of that. George Whitfield, a Calvinist and was a Church of England evangelist, Charles Haddon Spurgeon was a Baptist Calvinist, known for as the Prince of Preachers. John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist, was a tireless itinerant preacher. Dwight L. Moody, an uneducated evangelist who founded a college and a publishing house. In modern days, examples could include Billy Graham and Franklin Graham, two distinct different ministries, but impacting the entire world. God has used people throughout the ages that were not uniform necessarily in unity on every practice or belief, but he did it to build his kingdom. Second point is that unity is not unanimity. Unanimity requires absolute agreement on every matter, including matters of conscience and matters of opinion. Well, we must agree on those crucial matters of absolute truth, the doctrines, we have freedom to disagree on many manners without having to forfeit our love 
or acceptance of each other. We don't have to agree on every jot and tittle. We can have freedom of conscience, freedom to worship in the manner we choose to worship. Many of the great advances in Christian ministries were based on the differences between believers, not the least of those a rebirth of foreign missions through a passionate young idealist named William Carey, who took on the very nature of the Chinese people and became one of them in order to bring the gospel to China. Thirdly, unity is not unification. I don't think Jesus Christ would be half as disturbed as many of the people are with the existence of the various denominations that we have in the world today. The manner of which some believers break away might not be really admirable, and the doctrines of some may not be as pure as others. However, the concept of different churches having different non-essential matters and manifesting distinct identities is not necessarily dangerous to the unity of the body of Christ. Paul wrote his church in his letter to the Philippians in Philippians 1.18, but that doesn't matter. Whether their motives are false or genuine, the message of Christ is being preached either way, so I rejoice, and I will continue to rejoice. And Paul was talking about those who were ridiculing him and saying, ah, don't listen to Paul, listen to me. And Paul says, I will rejoice because Christ is being preached. That's the most important matter. It's quite possible to differ on a friendly basis while fulfilling common purpose, which is building of God's kingdom throughout the world. On the other hand, some extremists seek to separate the church. Some believers are unable to distinguish between non-essential and essential matters and have split the church because of that. But we can't have unity even if we don't agree on every little principle or matter of conscience. If we move on to verse 24, the Lord's second request was for the believers to enjoy eternity in heaven with their Savior. Our eternal destiny is to answer Jesus' prayer on our behalf. And we are, can be certain that the Son's request from the Father will be faithfully served. The reason that he gave that we might see his glory in verse 24. He wanted us to see the glory that he's taken, was, came from, and he returned to. Now, the older, older rendering of the Greek verb to see is to behold. And I think it captures a better nuance from the original term. Behold carries it a nuance of observing with wonder and deep appreciation. Now, as Paul was, or John was translating Jesus' words from Aramaic to Greek, John could have chosen from five different Greek terms, but he chose theorio. And this term typically describes spectators at a religious festival who view with wonder, curiosity, and contemplation what they're observing. The object of beholding will be his glory in heaven, where the Shekinah glory is not shrouded by any mortal flesh. The book of Revelation in John describes the glory of the Son as the source of light in all new creation. In his presence, there'll be no more darkness, there'll be no more night, because the glory of the Lord will shine through all eternity. As we move on to the last two verses, Jesus' final request from the Father for our mutual love in verses 25 and 26. 
the same kind of love shared by the Trinity and demonstrated by the Father that he was sending into the world his Son. At the same time, Jesus' earthly ministry, Judaism, had pushed God to the peripheral of their worship. They had come to see the Creator as some sort of transcendent, unapproachable God that they feared to even speak his name out loud. So they had worshiped the law above the lawgiver. They failed to recognize the great love for, that God had for them. And Jesus introduced once again into the Jewish community the true character and attributes of God. He introduced it to his disciples that all people might know the overwhelming love that the, the Creator has for his creation. At least one reason for leaving believers in this world is so that they would know the love of God, the love of the Father has for his people. And it occurs to me, as I reflect on this last request, that we've been given the ability to join with the Father in answering this prayer of Jesus. He desires unity in faith, unity in destiny, and unity in love. Now, he's guaranteed us unity in destiny. If we've accepted Christ as our Savior, we know that our eternal end will be with him. The unity in faith, though, and unity in love is a different story. We, as believers, are charged with unity of faith and unity in love for one another, that we might show the world Jesus Christ with that indwelling Holy Spirit, if only we allow that Holy Spirit to control our lives. After Jesus concluded his prayer, the men departed. They walked silently toward the Garden of Gethsemane, that dark night. They were so foreboding on them. He wanted to tell them much more, but his words would have been wasted as long as the disciples were more concerned about losing their master, the rabbi that they had been with for over three years. But no matter, he had given them all the information that they would need to carry on. And he trusted that with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that came at Pentecost, that the disciples would take that information and move on, that the Spirit would help them to recall the words and then use the disciples to further God's kingdom. And we saw how much bolder, once they received the Holy Spirit, that the disciples became and the church began to flourish. When Peter preached that bold statement at Pentecost, that bold message, over 3,000 were brought into the kingdom, including many of the priests and those that worked in the temple. However, before receiving this indwelling light of the Holy Spirit, the disciples thought the world had gone dark on them, that everything was in closing in on them. It seemed that they were overpowered by darkness and didn't have the light. But we know from John chapter 1, verse 5, it tells us that the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. So the application for today's passage is on the other side of your bulletin insert. Answering the prayer of Jesus. As the prayer of Jesus closes, I find the words a challenge that each of us must answer. But I also find three specific applications. They're simple, but I think they speak to the heart. 
The first one is, to grow in unity requires giving in. If you plan to be a person of unity, you have to give in. Now use this expression in its best sense, though. To give in, I mean you need to be flexible in terms of style, to be open, to be accommodating, to be gracious for those that might not believe exactly like you believe in every little phrase. They might be very strict, and you don't think we have more liberty. Or they might be very liberal, and you think, well, we need to rein that in. That is for God, through the Holy Spirit, to work on the heart of each believer. Now, we don't need to give an inch in terms of absolute biblical truth found in God's Word. But on those issues that are not absolute biblical truth, that are more of a conscious, more of a lifestyle that we live, we can relax and allow others to practice as they see according to God's Word. And as the years of serving in the church, these past 40-plus years of my adult life, through intense Bible study, I think I've rounded off a lot of my rough edges. I used to be a lot more dogmatic about certain issues, a lot more strict, a lot more fundamentalist in ways I thought. And I think over the years and seeing the church and the beauty of the church that God has combined together, that we can allow some latitude among believers and still be in unity with them. I have come to see that on so many issues that used to concern me have actually made the church better and have made it stronger. And I think God uses people who have a wide tolerance to keep the church flexible in style and yet firm on the truth. Secondly, to know our destiny requires that we give up. And you cannot get, keep your way and get to heaven. We have to give up something. If we're going to go to heaven, you have to go by God's way. You have to give up your plan and get yourself on the Lord's agenda. And I'm talking about, I'm not talking about cleaning up our act or reforming our behavior, because I think each of us can relate how desperately we fall short on that. I'm talking about believing in Jesus Christ and receiving that gift of eternal life and trusting that He will do the marvelous work of transformation within us. We give up on our own ability to reform humanity through gradual improvements. The work of the Holy Spirit that reforms humanity by turning them, drawing them to Him that they might accept Christ also. Accept that divine plan, the gift of eternal life. And thirdly, to show His love means giving out. Please, don't think for a moment that you really have Christian love if it's not expressed outwardly. There's no such thing as repressed Christian love. Christian love, by its very definition, is an active love, a love that produces works in our lives. That doesn't mean that you're always bubbly or that you're perpetuating emotion doing something for Christ. That means your love is evident to others. That doesn't mean, however, or it does mean, however, that our love relationship with other believers is characterized by a tangible and observable expression of love, helping those that are in need, caring for those that are sick, rejoicing with those that are rejoicing, and crying with those who are crying. 
It's to demonstrate kindness and compassion to people outside the church also, including your enemies, including those who hate you, showing the light. This is our light to be shown to the world. We are to be light, light bearers. We're to be unified in faith, unified in glory, unified in obedience. And the application today in this passage, although it was a short one, that we are to have unity in faith, in destiny, and in love. So our mission today, we need to make it a unity among all of our believers in these three aspects that we've looked at as we continue on building God's kingdom, which is our calling in this world to shine the light so others are brought into God's kingdom. And they see that. They'll know that we are Christ's disciples by our love for one another. And then next Sunday, we begin a final major segment of the good news according to John the Apostle, and that is the vindication of the word. And we see Jesus, who is the truth, as he endures injustice with grace. In a message I've titled, Truth on Trial, so I'd ask you to please read John chapter 18, verses 1 through 27, in preparation for next week's message. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you. We thank you for the prayer of Christ who prayed for us when he was facing trial and crucifixion that very night and the next day, facing the most horrible death that anyone could go through, being separated between you and the world, being lifted up that we might be made whole, to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and yet he took time to pray for us, that we might have unity, Father, unity in faith, unity in our destiny of eternal life, and unity in our love. Let it be our mission today to continue the building of your kingdom until you take us home to be with you, Father. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I pray that this message was a blessing and a time of learning from God's Word. Thank you so much for allowing me to be your guide, your mentor, but most importantly, I am your friend, as I serve you through the Wisdom Trek podcast and journal each day. And as we take this trek of life together, let us always live abundantly, love unconditionally, listen intentionally, learn continuously, lend to others generously. Lead with integrity and leave a living legacy each day. I am Guthrie Chamberlain reminding you to keep moving forward, enjoy your journey, and create a great day every day. See you next time for more wisdom from God's Word.